Uh, we're in Acts chapter 8, so if your Bibles get those open on your phone or your tablet or uh, your uh, bound uh, Bible. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 4. We'll go through to 25. But let's talk about uh, the heart today. Let's talk about the heart. Uh, the word heart appears in the Bible uh, more than a thousand times. Uh, that seems kind of significant that it would uh, show up that often. Uh, the heart is the essential core of a person. Uh, the, we could talk about the spirit or the soul, very often are used interchangeably for the heart. It's the immaterial part of who we are. It's the thinking, feeling, willful uh, part of who we are. And the heart is critical to our relationship with God because as the Apostle Paul said, uh, this is in Romans 10.10, 10, it is with the heart one believes and is justified. It's with the heart one believes and is uh, saved. And so in today's passage, as we're thinking about uh, the heart, uh, we're going to be introduced to a man named Simon, and he's heard the gospel. He indicates faith in Jesus Christ, and he's baptized with several others who have heard the gospel in this town in Samaria. But in Simon's early steps in the faith, he makes a serious mistake, and he falls back into some old ways of thinking and some old actions. And I think that some of us, you know, many of us probably did the same thing. The time we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but maybe right after that, we may have returned to some old ways of thinking. We may have returned some, to some old activities or actions that we had. And so in that way, Simon is like us, and we're like Simon. In the words of Peter, who spoke to him about it, verse 21 says, his heart was not right before God, and that the intent, verse 22, the intent of his heart needed to be reversed. So this was a heart issue. And that provides, again, a serious challenge for us. Simon got it wrong, just like many of us get it wrong. His heart was not centered on the gospel that he had heard and received. And we're going to be pressed to ask ourselves the question as we work through the passage, is the intent of my heart centered on the gospel? That's the question you're going to ask yourself. Is the intent of my heart centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me read the passage and then we're going to get into five diagnostic questions that are going to help us figure this out for ourselves, right? This is Acts 8, verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice uh, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. 
And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. All right, is the intent of my heart centered on the gospel? Um, ask yourself uh, these five questions. We'll start with this one. Am I saved? Now, that's a necessary, it's a great starting point, but a necessary starting point as we get through this, because if you're not yet saved, if you're not yet a Christian, if you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as, as uh, Lord and Savior, uh, then the rest of this message doesn't apply to you. So we need to settle this matter first, uh, the matter of your eternal soul. So this is the first and most essential matter to be resolved. It's your standing before God. Now jump down to verse 5. We'll come back to verse 4 in a minute. Philip, he's one of the seven in this study of Acts. He's one of the seven along with Stephen, who in chapter 7 is uh, martyred for the faith, the first martyr for the gospel. But Philip is one of the seven with Stephen who were appointed to feed the widows back in chapter 6. And now he's preaching. Now he's taking the gospel out from Jerusalem. And he went down to this uh, city of Samaria, not sure which city, likely the principal city of the region of Samaria. And he proclaimed to them the Christ. And we see in verse 6 that the crowds actually paid attention to Philip. They paid attention to the signs that he was doing. He was doing exorcisms, verse 7 says, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. There were healings. People who were paralyzed and lame found healing. So people are hearing the gospel. People are getting free of the occult. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. There's a clear move of the Holy Spirit. We could all agree based on the testimony here. We can agree there's a clear move of the Holy Spirit among the Samaritans as the gospel is preached. And among the converts, verse 9, is this man named Simon, who the text tells us had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Now, by magic, let's be clear what we're talking about here. This doesn't mean that he's like going to kids' birthday parties and doing tricks. Okay, he's not on America's Got Talent trying to get a Vegas gig. When we talk about a magician here, we're talking about someone who is given to the occult. In fact, uh, someone who might be given to sorcery or witchcraft. We would use uh, phrases like this to refer to this category of uh, practices, uh, seances, fortune-telling, astrology, uh, psychic uh, readings. All of that is what we're talking about when we talk about Simon practicing uh, magic. 
And he, he was a self-promoter uh, by saying that he himself was someone great. And he wasn't wrong. He was influential. People knew about him all over Samaria. Verse 10 says, they all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, like, like ordinary people and great people, people who were in positions of power paid attention to Simon, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Like they were kind of putting a name on him. They bought into his marketing and they bought into his occult practices, just like people today continue to buy into this. I didn't find any numbers for Canada, but in the United States, uh, more than 90,000 people make a living in the occult practices. 90,000 people make a living this way. It is a $2 billion industry in the United States alone. Uh, the, the practice of, of, of the occult, psychic reading, seances, all of it. So they bought into his marketing and occult practices just like people today. Verse 11 says, for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic, but then Philip came along with the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 says, they believed Philip as he preached the good news. People were baptized, men and women. And so Philip presents the Samaritans with liberation from Simon's influences and people of his, uh, that are like him from occult practices, from demonization, and he's doing it by the power of the gospel. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed after, and after being baptized, so he believed, he was baptized just like many people in the city. He continued with Philip, tagging along with him because he wanted to see more. So he saw more signs and more people coming to Jesus, more miracles being performed. And, and, and back in verse 11, it said, the people were amazed by, by Simon. And now it says, he was amazed. He was the one who was now in awe of all the things that God was doing. And so the people of this Samaritan city and, and Simon himself, who had been influential in keeping them in darkness, and all these people had surrendered their lives to Jesus. You have to ask yourself the question, why? Like, why did they? Why, upon the hearing of the gospel of Christ, did they turn their hearts over to him? And it's, it's because they knew it responded perfectly to the longings of their heart in a way that Simon's sorcery never did. And this world offers you, it offers all of us something that's a substitute for God. And I'm talking to those primarily in the room here, because if you know Jesus, you have this testimony. But if you don't know Jesus, you don't have it yet. And you're still looking for something to satisfy the longing in your heart. So this world does offer you alternatives to Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, those alternatives ultimately do not satisfy They'll never fulfill the longings in your heart. And as amazed as the people were at Simon, thinking that that was the best they could possibly do to fulfill the longings of their heart, as soon as Philip came to town and preached the gospel, they knew, oh, no, no, it's not that, it's this. The gospel is what I need. I need Jesus. Because this world and all of its techniques and all of the things it could possibly offer us this world will always fall short of what God offers you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope that we have through Jesus Christ beats everything. And having a heart that's centered on the gospel starts with having a heart that is surrendered to it. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says it's with the, it's, it's with the mouth that one confesses and with the heart that one believes 
And that's as simple as it is. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, it's as simple as saying, I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. If you believe those two things, you'll be saved. That's it. Just believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Having a heart that's centered on the gospel starts with having a heart that is surrendered to the gospel. So that's question one. We've got that one settled. Maybe that's for some who are watching or who are here in the room this morning. Here's a second question. Am I missional? Because once I'm saved, I am now on mission automatically, every Christian on mission to plant more churches that are filled with new disciples and growing disciples of Jesus Christ. The mission, in fact, takes a big step forward. When we read verse 4 here, the mission takes a big step forward. In fact, verse 4 of chapter 8 marks the second main section of the book of Acts. From chapter 1 through to chapter 8, verse 3, it was the, it was the first, we could put it this way, the first phase of the mission. And that was to bring the gospel to Jerusalem and, and, to, and to deliver the, the mission mandate to all of them. And, and all of the action up until verse 3 of chapter 8 focuses on the city of Jerusalem. And so the first section comes to an end. We have uh, those, verse 4 it says, those who were scattered by the persecution that resulted from the martyrdom of Stephen. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so this starts the second main section of Acts, but the second phase of the mission as entrusted to us. The injustice that Stephen experienced of being murdered resulted in the mission advancing out beyond Jerusalem, exactly as Jesus had outlined it in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, they'd been doing that for almost eight chapters now. In Judea, Samaria, that's the surrounding region around Jerusalem, and then to the end of the earth. And so this is the second main phase of the mission, but it comes as a result of this incredible injustice that was brought about on Stephen. A clear example of Romans 8, 28, which says, you know, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so God has brought about something wonderful. He's advancing his plan as a result of the martyrdom of Stephen. So the most trying of circumstances are being used by God to advance his program for you and for the world. And of course, the last year and a half, the last 18 months have been a clear example of that in all of our lives. The most trying of circumstances are being used by God to advance his program for you and for the world. That has been the last 18 months. And we can fight what's going on around us, or we can see the missional implications in every circumstance that we go through. And we've been trying to learn that lesson for months now. I look at the circumstances that I'm in, and I see what are the missional implications of what I'm going through right now. The missional implications of Stephen being martyred, which was horrible, was that all these Samaritans got saved. No one would deny that that's an awesome thing. So Philip goes to this city in Samaria. He preaches to people that Jews were not fond of. That's 
like an understatement to say that Jews were not fond of Samaritans. In fact, there was some deep ethnic animosity, deep prejudice. Uh, One commentator, John Polhill, actually said, Philip preaching in Samaria was a radical step toward a vision of a gospel free of nationalistic prejudice. A gospel free of nationalistic prejudice. Prejudice. There's just no room in the preaching of the gospel for any prejudice whatsoever, no ethnic animosity whatsoever, no room for any of that in any Christian's life at any time. Not one amen to that? Like, do we agree or not? There should be no prejudice in any of us. This is a huge step forward in that. And so Philip goes to this city, he preaches to the Samaritans. He sees all of these converts. That's the mission. He's carrying out the mission. If you go right to the last verse, we see the mission reinforced again. Peter and John, of course, were dispatched. We'll look at that in a moment. They went to survey and confirm the work among the Samaritans. But as soon as they were done their work, verse 25 says, after they had testified, spoken the word of the Lord to the people in that city, they returned to Jerusalem, but they didn't go straight back to Jerusalem. They went to all these other towns and villages along the way in Samaria to preach the gospel to them. Again, phase two of the mission to Judea and Samaria is now in full swing. And the mission continues to this day. In fact, those of you who are part of our Harvest family, you've been around for a little while, you know that um, back in March of of this year, we joined a new network of churches. It's called Acts 29. And maybe some of you saw that name and you went, well, that's obviously based on the Bible. And you went to the Bible to find Acts chapter 29. And then you discovered there is no chapter 29. That the book of Acts ends at chapter 28. And it ends with the gospel continuing to advance throughout the Mediterranean world, throughout the Roman Empire. Acts 29, the organization that we're a part of today, is, is, is really just a statement about the fact that the mission continues beyond Acts chapter 28, and that that is what has been entrusted to us. This is the mission that we carry on to this day. We're carrying on the work now, again, as Acts 1.8 said, we're carrying on the work to the end of the earth. We're taking it everywhere we can possibly take it. And, and, and the question each of us must ask now as we think about this, am I missional? Is this intent of my heart centered on the gospel with respect to this mission? I jotted down a bunch of things here. To what extent do I, for example, pray for the lost? There's not a person in this room, not a person in this room who doesn't have others in their life, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers who don't know Jesus. We all have those people in our life. But to what extent do you pray about the lost people in your life? To what extent are you praying for those who don't have Jesus yet? Do you say their name to Jesus in prayer and ask God to use you or use others or to bring something about in their life that they might turn their life over to Christ? Do you pray for the lost? Do you invite people to come and see? Do you say to coworkers or family members or friends, you know, you should come to our church. You should sit through a service, come here in the room. Or if they're not comfortable with that, you can say to them, you know, you can watch a service on the live stream or you can catch it on demand. All of our services are there. Go and watch a service. Do you invite people to come and see what God is doing? 
Beyond that, do you go and tell? And there's two aspects to the going and telling, to go right to a person to explain either your story, how you came to Christ, how he's transformed your life, or to be able to actually explain the gospel. We talk here about the five gospel words. It's on our website and on our uh, hbc.info. It's right there. But could you explain the gospel? Either using the five gospel words or some other way to explain the gospel or taking them directly to the scripture. Do you have the training, the ability? Have you equipped yourself to be able to explain the gospel, to go and tell? Or would you say, and this is a much higher level of commitment, would you say, as some people did here in Barrie at one point, um, I want to I be part of a core team that plants a church. I want to move to a new city. I want to help to plant a church. Or someone here might be a saying, um, I want to become a church planter, a pastor. I want to plant a church. I want to train for that. Who would be committed to that? Or how about funding the mission? Am I giving toward the mission that Christ has given to us in this world? Those are kind of like all the doing aspects. And behind all of that, though, do I love people? I mean, I'm never going to be missional if I don't actually love people, if I don't take the great commandment seriously, which says, love God, love people. Do I genuinely love people? And do I show that through my actions? Tied in with that, do I hate injustice? And do I speak out against injustice in the world? Do I act toward, in a loving way, towards those who are being treated unjustly in this world? Because when we're transformed by the gospel, we should have a desire to bring about justice in the world. Personally, if I'm going to be on mission, personally, am I being transformed is my life more and more aligned with the gospel in holiness, in the fruit of the Spirit? And then finally, I wrote, are you committed to this uncommon community we call Harvest? Or your church? Community of people who are like-minded, who are on mission with you. If you're missional, you want to be together with other people who are missional. If you're missional, you want to be involved and, and part of community and doing life together with others. If you're missional, the best part of your week is when you gather together with God's people to worship him because God is missional in this world. He sent his son to die so that we might have life through his resurrection. If you want to know God's heart, here it is. 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And God did something about it. Now, if that's God's heart, and we're talking about our hearts, the intent of our heart, that ought to be the intent of our heart. I ought to be able to put my name in there. I desire all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And I need to do something about it. So that's the second question. Here's the third one. Am I joyful? Now, as a result of the bold proclamation of the gospel and the conversions, verse 8, it says there was much joy in that city and no doubt also um, 
the healings and the exorcisms and everything else, the miracles that were happening, they naturally brought joy to people, to their friends, to everybody in the community, uh, because uh, no doubt some had been afflicted for years. Maybe some for a lifetime, and they had been healed. God was doing some miraculous things. And so there was a lot of joy that was happening in this city. Joy is among, of course, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, and 23. Those are the natural outflow of a life that is being transformed by Jesus Christ. One lexicon uh, notes that joy is defined as uh, the experience of gladness. Just jot that phrase down if you're taking notes. Joy is the experience of gladness. It is a um, an indication that every Christian should have of an ongoing fact, an ongoing experience of gladness, not a one-time thing. And do you have that? Like, if you were being pressed right now as an individual, if I was to say, "Are you a joyful person?" I think the better it would be better to ask the people in your home that live with you. Don't you think? And so and so that lives with you, are they a joyful person? Are, you, are, are, are they, are you experiencing gladness in your walk with Christ? Is that being evidenced around you? Do people notice it? And if you don't have that, but you profess faith in Christ, it would be great to ask the question right now, why am I not experiencing gladness? Why am I not joyful? Is it because the intent of your heart is set on things that do not bring the experience of gladness? Are you like Simon was, fixated on material gain, fixated on being powerful and, and influential? Maybe you're all about leisure. And ironically, you think leisure, comfort is going to bring you joy, and the pursuit of it does not, because you've got it in the wrong order. Do you think that the next relationship you're going to be in, that's going to finally bring you happiness? Do you think that having more children or when grandchildren come, that that will finally bring you joy? Will it be the next church, the next job? the next move, the next city, the next house. None of these things will give you an experience of gladness unless you first have the gospel at the center of your heart. The psalmist, the psalmist knew where to find it. Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist says this, you make known to me the path of life. And we know that path of life to be Jesus. You made known to me Jesus. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. You're not going to find it in anything else except in the presence of God. And at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore, not the fleeting pleasures of this life, not temporary happiness, but an experience of gladness that transcends this life and goes on into eternity. Why would we not all want that? Why would we not all pursue that? 
Am I joyful? Is that the intent of your heart? To be joyful in the way that God tells us to be joyful. Fourth question. Am I spirit-filled? Now, verse 14 tells us that word got back to the apostles at Jerusalem. Samaria had received the word of God. They dispatched uh, Peter and John, who went down and, notice, um, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Just put a kind of like a little note there. We're going to come back and talk about that. Verse 16, for he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, the book of Acts, we have the book of Acts in the New Testament here. You know, it's, it's the only record of the start of the early church. We have only one book in the Bible that tells us about the start of the early church. We have four gospels, and we can see different stories, different nuances, different emphases that are in the stories. And, and we know that the four gospels were written with different audiences in mind. And so it, it just brings in different details. And it's awesome that we have the four that we can look at with respect to this, the, the, the story of Jesus. And, and, but the book of Acts, we only have one. And so this is, this is all we have. And, and, and we know as we look at the establishing of the church in this book, that it's filled with events that are on the one hand, unique, one of a kind, never to be repeated occurrences. We could look at the day of Pentecost, for example. That's a one of a kind occurrence. The Holy Spirit coming down for the first time, and filling all the people and the manifestations that came out of it and the 3,000 people that were converted and baptized, one-off occurrence. Even just before that, the ascension of Jesus, a one-off occurrence in the book of Acts, not to be repeated. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, there are in the book of Acts templates and patterns for things that are normative for, for the church going forward throughout history. For example, the preaching of the gospel, the fulfilling of the great commission that he had given to us as a church, or um, a person believing and then being baptized, a pattern there that was established uh, for the church to practice throughout history. And as it relates to how Christians receive the Holy Spirit today, we see that in the book of Acts, there's no set pattern for how the Holy Spirit came to Christians. The only thing that we can say for certain is that the Holy Spirit came. But how he came and when he came is different in all kinds of different situations. We have several cases where the Spirit came instantly upon a decision for Christ. We have other instances like this one where the Holy Spirit came later as a result of hands being laid on believers. There's no set pattern in the Scriptures. In fact, many Bible teachers would see what happens here in Samaria uh, they would see this episode, and they actually call it the Samaritan Pentecost, a much more scaled-down version of what happened in Jerusalem. But it was for the Samaritans and for the inauguration of this second phase of the mission so important. It's their version of what happened in Jerusalem. Verse 17 says, when they laid their hands, this is the apostles, when they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now that said, while every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit at salvation, the moment you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
But then we can talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit or the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, or some would say the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's subject to our willingness to be surrendered to the, to the Spirit's control. To some extent, that's dependent on us surrendering to God and saying, I'm willing to be used by the Holy Spirit. It depends on us making sure that we're repentant of our sin, that we're a, a vessel fit to be used by God to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I did a four-part series a number of years ago on the Holy Spirit that explains all of this in much more depth. We put the link in the notes at hvc.info if you want to watch that four-part series and hear more about this. But for now, it's enough to say at salvation, we're indwelt by the Spirit, but the filling or empowering the Spirit is subject to our willingness to be surrendered to God. In fact, speaking to believers, the Apostle Paul said this in Romans 8, 9, you, however, speaking to Christians, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You're Christians. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, if you're Christians, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, listen, then you're not saved. And so the intent of my heart must be one of wholehearted surrender and submission to the Holy Spirit in my life. That's what the Lord is calling us to here. And that's something that was lacking in Simon. And, and this, that takes us to our last question here. This last question, such an important one. Am I a repenter? Am I a repenter? Now, if you, if you type the word repenter into your word processor, you're going to see a red squiggly line under it. It's not actually a word. Uh, but it is a word. If a preacher says it's a word, it's a word. If it's in an outline, it's in print, it must be a word. But here's, here's where it comes from. Um, I actually had the privilege of traveling to uh, Romania with uh, Terry Codling. I think he's in the room somewhere, right? Terry, are you in the room? I think he was planning on being here this morning. Um, maybe he was at first service. But Terry and I, uh, Terry's Elder Emeritus here at Harvest, and he oversees our global partnerships. And uh, Terry and I, nine years ago, we got to go to Romania, and we got to work with some churches there, or a church there that was in crisis and needed some leadership development. So we went uh, to give them a hand with that. And of course, Romania um, had come out of communism. Prior to that, was very steeped in Catholicism. And so it had vestiges of Catholicism, but still very deeply entrenched in a lot of communistic thinking, including most of the country being atheistic. That said, the gospel spreading like crazy. Many, many Romanians are coming uh, to faith in Jesus Christ, and churches are being planted all over the country, and we've had the privilege of knowing some of these Christians. When we got there, we found out that Christians in Romania are called repenters. I mean, people in Romania who are not Christians, in order to distinguish them from people who might be Catholic or any other kind of established faith group or church group, they would, these, these non-Christians would call the Christians repenters because they're always repenting of things. And in fact, the Christians in Romania, they just leaned into it. They said, hey, that's kind of a cool name. We'll take that on ourselves. And so this church that we were working with was actually called Metanoia, which is, uh, which is the Greek word, the New Testament Greek word for repentance. And so they just said, we're the repentance church, and we're filled with the repenters. And so that's where I've taken the word from. And it, it just seems right that we as Christians today would adopt that for ourselves. And we would just say, we'll just lean into it. It says, yeah, we repent. We're repenters. We're constantly repenting. Yes, we repent 
at our conversion, and, and God saves us. When I, when I was saved at the age of 15, I repented in that moment. I confessed my sins, and I turned my life over to Jesus Christ at the age of 15. We're all forgiven of all of our sins by the singular act of sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. And when any of us came to faith in Jesus Christ, the way that we did it was by confessing our sins before him and finding forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The singular act of sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us, our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins, all atoned for by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that when I came to Christ at 15, in that moment... 15 years worth of sin was forgiven by Christ. Sins that I was struggling with at the time as a 15-year-old were forgiven by Christ. And 42 years worth of future sins were forgiven back in 1979. They were forgiven right there, all of those sins. And I still, hopefully I have a few years left ahead of me. Whatever years I have left, all those sins that I've not yet committed, probably a bunch of them, they're all forgiven. They're all forgiven. They're all atoned for by the singular act of sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. But as I travel the timeline, as I have traveled the 42-year-old, the 42-year-long timeline from the time I became a believer until now, I've been repenting many times along the way, thousands of times. Until the day I die, I expect I'll continue to repent for sins that I'm going to commit. And as we travel the timeline of our lives, we still sin, and that sin must be repented of along the way, daily, or in real time in the moment. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray, and this is so interesting, because he knew that his sacrifice was going to be once for all. That all of our sins would be expunged in one moment when he said it is finished. And yet Jesus, when he taught us to pray, Matthew chapter 6, what we call the Lord's Prayer, he said, forgive us our trespasses, our debts, our sins. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus taught us to regularly confess our sins to him in an ongoing way. We are to daily repent of sins that are already paid for and already forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. And it seems like an oxymoron to, moron to us, but it's God's way of helping us process our sins. It's God's way of, of helping us not be burdened by the sins that we commit and to process them in the moment. Now, here's why we needed to lay that out. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. You idiot. How would you think that this was right? And he's falling right back into his old pattern of sins. I mean, I don't know what your pattern of sins are, but it's not my pattern of sins. I got a whole host of my own pattern of sins, and I tend to fall back in the very same ones. You may have victory over something I don't have victory over, and I have victory over something you don't have victory over. Simon falls back into his old pattern of sins. 
It's all about money. It's all about power and prestige. That's what he was about. He says, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And I mean, there's a part of that that's good. I mean, wanting to give the Holy Spirit to people, that sounds awesome. So part marks for Simon? What do you think? Part marks? I mean, we can at least see that he's kind of in the right neighborhood. And everyone but Simon can see that this is a problem. I mean, if people had social media back then, they'd be on their social media. They'd be using eye roll and face palm emojis after telling the story of what Simon had said. People around him probably ran for cover lest lightning strike him and hit them too, or the ground open up and swallow them as well. And Peter steps up, and this is where, this is where Peter shines, right? This is where Peter shines. He's going to boldly confront. I mean, Peter was always boldly confronting people, not always in the best way. You know, Peter, Peter just had a lot of harsh words to say to people. In fact, one time, remember Peter, he rebuked even Jesus. And you know that someone's a little bit too big on the rebuking program when he thinks that he could rebuke Jesus. But that was Peter. And so Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. And he's speaking of the gospel or of the indwelling and empower of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Peter's, some people disagree as they're looking at this passage, but I, I don't believe that Peter's saying he's unsaved, but I believe Peter's walking right up to the line saying, dude, if you don't turn something around quickly, I mean, I just think there's no evidence that you're actually saved. He's coming right up to the line. And there's no denying that this is an egregious sin. And Peter's stern, even harsh reaction, it's not unwarranted. And he says to him, again, we looked at this in the introduction, your heart is not right before God. Verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart, the motivation behind what you did may be forgiven you. Now we've defined repentance in the past. I'll give it to you again, two very key words in, in, in understanding what repentance is, agree and turn, agree and turn. Repentance is to agree with God and to turn away from your way of doing things to His. I just need to do that daily. Agree with God. Stop thinking the way I'm thinking. I'm going to agree with God. And I'm going to turn from my way of doing things to His. And in the context of what we're looking here in the passage, what we could say is that repentance is a change of heart. It's, it's agreeing with God about what my heart should be attached to, and it's, and, and it's turning from my way to his way. And that's the appeal that Peter makes in verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. He holds nothing back here. You're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Sin has a grip on you, Simon. And if he did not repent here, I mean, there was no indication that he was sorry, that he knew he was wrong. If there was nothing here, then I think we could definitely walk over the line and say, you know what, Simon's not saved. There's no evidence for his salvation here. But he does repent. But I'm going to say he repents imperfectly. Probably like a lot of our repentance, it's imperfect. He repents imperfectly when he says this in verse 24. Pray for me to the Lord. 
Pray for me to the Lord. Intercede for me, Peter. Would you pray to God for me? That nothing of what you've said may come upon me. I don't want these consequences. Now, he seems too fixated on the consequences and not enough on the action of what he did. Like I said, it's repentance, but it's imperfect repentance. But again, most repentance is imperfect. Wouldn't you agree with that? Most times when you're repenting of whatever your sins are, you're not bringing everything to the table every time. You're not doing it perfectly. Most repentance is, is A, imperfect, and B, a process. Most repentance is a process of coming to an understanding of the depth of our sin. Our salvation and our sanctification are not simultaneous. Our salvation marks that moment that we become a follower of Jesus Christ. But our sanctification is that long, that lifelong process of becoming like Jesus Christ. Our salvation and our sanctification are not simultaneous. Simon had been saved, but he was in the process of sanctification. And so let's be grace-filled toward this man, Simon, because we all need the same grace. Let's be grace-filled towards him because he was so steeped in his sin, he wasn't just caught in his own sin. We could say that Simon was a professional sinner because sin, especially this, his practice of, of magic, of the occult, he did that professionally and he led other people into sin. He was a professional sinner. And how easy do we think it would be to break free of what Simon had given his life to? So grace. Ultimately, if sin is willful, if it's habitual, if there's a, a lack of desire to repent, then no one can claim to be saved. But in Simon's case, I'd agree with what one eminent scholar said, just because you're saved doesn't mean you're smart. Pastor Roger has another way of saying that too. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're not stupid. So you can quote it either way. And I would say Simon wasn't smart. Saved, but not smart in this particular situation. We all have so much growing to do. And in fact, Peter would later write in his second letter, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed, again, speaking of Christians, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And I wonder if Peter wrote that thinking about Simon. Hey, you know who this applies to? Simon. Remember that guy? You see, if I'm to know that the intent of my heart is gospel-centered, I have to be a regular repenter of my sins. I always have to be agreeing with God and turning from my way to His way. Five questions that help us discern the intent of our hearts and whether or not it is centered on the gospel. And I have to believe that as we have looked at this, that there's so much for us to consider and think about, that we ought to be reflecting carefully on the things that we've heard. And so I want us actually to take some time in the service right now to do that. And so just take your Bibles and your notes, your phones and iPads, and set those aside right now. 
And, and we're going to spend some time responding here. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up to the stage. And they're going to lead us through a song in just a moment that's really a prayer to God that indicates our response to Him. But take a moment right now to think about what you've heard. And God, do I need to repent of something? Maybe you already know what it is. And I'm going to invite you to respond to the Lord. Maybe you want to stand and sing with the worship team. Maybe you want to get down on your knees and kneel at your, at your place uh, right where you are and pray to the Lord and repent of some things that are happening in your life. Whatever it happens to be, you respond to the Lord as the team leads us through this time. So I don't want us to leave here just checking the box and saying, I heard a sermon. I don't want anybody to leave here or to, to tune out in terms of the live stream. I don't want them to leave if they're not yet a follower of Christ and this is to be their moment where they surrender to Christ. And so if there's some repenting that needs to happen here, whether for the first time in salvation or for the 1,000th time as part of the process of our sanctification, let's get that done. Let's do it before we leave. So let's... Let's go to prayer. Let's respond to the Lord. Let's sing. Let's worship him as the team leads us.